Welcome to Nurture and Nature Radio, your weekly nature playlist for kids and families. Join us each week where we'll show you how getting outdoors with your family can help your kids be happier, healthier and smarter. And you'll open the door to a whole lot of fun too. So come on, lace up your boots and let's go and play outside. Here's your host, Tanya Maloney. Hello everyone and welcome to Nurture in Nature Radio. I'm your host Tanya Maloney and this is episode number nine of the show. In today's episode I interview Richard Louvre. Now if you're part of the movement to connect kids and families and people of all ages with nature you will know who Richard Louvre is. But if you don't know who Richard Louvre is you're about to find out and you're about to be absolutely inspired. So Richard was originally a journalist and in 2005 he wrote a book called Last Child in the Woods Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. Richard's book provided a catalyst and such great inspiration for people all around the world who were passionate about humanity, about nature and about reconnecting the two. The book was so successful and so well received and people were so excited about it that Richard and some of his wonderful friends and colleagues founded the Children and Nature Network, an organisation committed to reconnecting our kids and families and people of all ages with the natural world. Since then, the movement has gone from strength to strength as we see more and more the power of nature and how it can help our kids grow and thrive in the world. I'm thrilled to be part of this movement and I know so many wonderful people who are part of it. And I know so many families who have just been transformed by the power of nature in their lives. When I started doing this work, Richard Louvre was on my nature hit list or my nature playlist, I guess you could call it. And so to find myself sitting opposite Richard Louvre in his San Diego backyard, having a wonderful conversation about something that I was so passionate about was just a dream come true. And I'm so thrilled to be able to bring you my interview with him. I even found myself asking him if he knew how many teats were on the udder of a cow. So you'll have to listen in to find out if he actually knew the answer. But along my journey to get to interview Richard Louvre, I met and interviewed and worked with some of the most amazing people in this space. And I'm so privileged to continue to do so. Richard also has some other really great books, among them The Nature Principle, Reconnecting with Life in a Virtual Age. And his most recent book, Vitamin N, The Essential Guide to a Nature-Rich Life. And the N, of course, stands for nature. I caught up with Richard again recently at the Children and Nature Network conference. And we were chatting about his new book, Vitamin N, which which I absolutely love. And I read on my plane flight to the US, uh, which was fantastic. And we were talking about his book and I had in my hand the Family Nature Bucket List. Now, if you've heard me talk before about the Family Nature Bucket List, you know I love it. And it is a fantastic tool to help families and schools and groups and even individuals reconnect with the natural world in a simple and fun way and so I'm standing there talking to Rich and I had my bucket and he asked me what it was and I told him about it. If you want to find more about the Family Nature Bucket List you can actually listen to episode number eight of the show which is all about the what's why's and how's of the Family Nature Bucket List and Richard said to me wow I wish I had known about the bucket list because I would have put it in the book. And so obviously I was pretty chuffed that Richard Louvre loved my bucket list. And so I said, well, why don't I make a very special vitamin N edition of the Family Nature Bucket List and we can use it to help encourage people to get started in working their way through the 500 nature-oriented activities for families and organisations and communities that are in the book. And so he loved that idea, so did I. So what I've done is put together that very special vitamin N edition of the Family Nature bucket list and I think when you combine the two you get a really powerful prescription for lots of healthy fun learning and memory making with your family which is what we're all about here at Nurture in Nature. 
So as I said, the book presents over 500 great nature-oriented actions for families in communities and organisations. And to help get you started, we've chosen 31 of them. The activities have been handpicked for you by our five great nature-loving kids as those they'd like to do first. We went through the book and they decided that these were the ones that they wanted to get out and get doing. Now, of course, they wanted to do all 500, but 500 pegs wouldn't fit on one bucket. Unless, as Nash suggested, we got a giant bucket. So what we'd like to inspire you and challenge you to do is join us in ticking off the activities in this fun, family-friendly version of the Family Nature Bucket List. To get all the instructions on how to make your own Family Nature Bucket List using an actual bucket, you can visit nurtureinnature.com.au forward slash bucket list where you can download your free copy of 7 Easy Steps to Making Your Family Nature Bucket List. All the details for the Vitamin N edition of the Family Nature Bucket List can be found on this episode's show notes page at www.nurtureinnature.com.au forward slash vitamin N. And there you'll find a downloadable list of those 31 great activities inspired by Richard's book. And when you're done, we'd love to see yours and all the fun you have together with your family or with your group. You can share your photos, videos and experiences on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and Pinterest using the hashtags hashtag Family Nature Bucket List and hashtag Vitamin N. We can't wait to see what you and your family get up to with the book and the bucket. So now it's time to get into my interview with Richard. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do and I'll see you on the other side. Hi everyone, Tanya Maloney here and today I'm in Southern California, still in beautiful sunny San Diego with Richard Lou. So welcome Richard and thanks for speaking with me. Thanks. Excellent. Uh, now Richard is a highly esteemed journalist and award-winning author of many, many books, but notably to Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder and The Nature Principle. He is a highly sought after speaker and the founder and chairman of the Children and Nature Network. And you're also a dad, your beautiful wife Kathy is here, and a dad to Jason and Matthew who are two fully grown nature loving boys. Yeah. I'm sure there are so many people watching this Richard who know who you are um, and what you do and, and the great impact you're having in, in the world of connecting kids to nature. But for those who don't, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started? Um, sure. I'm a, I'm a journalist, and this is a good story. Uh, but also, I was actually a kid once, and I spent a lot of time in the woods behind my house. I grew up outside of uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas on the other side of the border, and spent a lot of time in nature. And I knew as a kid that it was uh, kind of profoundly important uh, to me and to others, but I didn't. I couldn't have articulated that. Yeah. Later on, I was doing interviews for another book in the late 1980s about how family life is changing in the modern world. And parents, and to an extent kids, kept bringing up this issue that they didn't have a language to describe it, uh, which was their feeling that something was changing in the relationship between children and nature, and therefore between human beings and nature. And at that time, it was really starting to accelerate this discontent connection between children and nature. Since that time, is it ex that disconnect has accelerated, and I won't go into all the statistics, but it's pretty uh, pretty striking. And for the first time in really, really human history, uh, we are uh, prim primarily disconnected from nature in our daily lives. Our lives are becoming increasingly virtual. And we have to understand how fast this is happening and that that it has to have profound implications for psychological health, physical health, our relationship with the, the earth itself. Uh, because for all of human history and uh, prehistory, kids went outside and spent most of their developing years either playing or, or working in the natural world. And within the last 30 years or so, we're really seeing an acceleration of the disengagement to the point where it's not necessarily considered normal or expected for kids to do that. Now Richard, I can't tell you the number of people, and I'm sure you get this all the time, that have said to me when I, they know what I'm doing um, and 
in these interview series particularly, you know, you, there's this great book called Last Child in the Woods. You've got to read this, un, you know, fantastic mm. book by Richard Louvre. And, and I know that your book was such a catalyst almost for starting to get the conversation going and the movement going. And, and I think it was really important. I know it was really important in just helping ignite people's passion for it, wasn't it? Well, it... Um... You know, there, there, it's often called a movement to connect children and nature, to reconnect yeah. children and nature, but that existed before the book came along. Yeah. It just wasn't on the front burner of the stove in terms of our conversation as a culture about it. And Last Child was proved to be a useful tool uh, to forward that discussion. But the truth is, lots of people have been working on this for decades, and uh, they've been doing wonderful work. Uh, and now I hope a lot more people are, are working on it. It's kind of a perfect storm that the book was, you know, a, a part of, but I think there was just, it was time in our culture, whether it's the U.S. or Australia or Canada or even the Scandinavian countries where, you know, we assume people are doing everything right on this issue, but uh, even there I began to hear from people who say we like your book but we've got nature deficit disorder too. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of a perfect storm as I said of, of concern about technology, of, of fear of strangers which seems to permeate Western culture in particular. Um, uh, just a, a, a worry about children in general. Why was obesity among children rising at such a fast Clip. Why is there so much attention deficit disorder in children? So all of that kind of came together at the at the same time. The book helped. Yeah, it was able to. You were able to give people a, a way to articulate it, as you said before. Yeah, well, it gave me a way to talk about yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And <laughs> I imagine you haven't stopped talking since then. Yeah, I talk in my sleep. I wake my wife up in the middle, given middle of the night, giving her speeches. Excellent. Well, she's lovely. <laughs> I, I just had um, a lovely conversation with her. So <laughs> excellent. Um, so when you first started to put pen to paper for Last Child in the Woods, obviously you said the movement was had started, unofficially started, um, and the message was really important, but did you have any idea of where it was going to take you and, and what sort of an impact it would have? Uh, no, obviously. <laughs> now the next to the last chapter in Last Child in the Woods, and I expand on this in the newer book, The Nature Principle, which is also about adults. But in the next to the last chapter, I imagined a movement. I mean, I imagine a movement emerging, similar to the no smoking movement, similar to other social movements that have occurred in the past. Uh, but to tell you the truth, that was kind of wishful thinking and uh, at the time. But, you know, it's proved to be, uh, to, to be true. And... You know, that's profoundly uh, rewarding, I can tell you. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, I hope I get it. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope you do too, and you're, you're on your way. So, yeah. And as you said, there's so many people involved in the movement, and I've met so many of them, so I have to thank you for that, because I've mm -hmm. had the opportunity to connect with you yeah. know, friends of yours who are, who I know are near and dear to you and who are doing some great work. And it's given other people a chance to, um, to do that. But things like the, the Children and Nature Network... Yeah. That has been so important in helping to connect people and acknowledge people and inspire people, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, that, that emerged out of Last Child, because after Last Child came out, um, I was uh, really overwhelmed with requests saying, well, what do we do now? And I said, I don't know, I'm a journalist, uh, yeah. this is a, I, I can't handle actually all of this, these questions and all, all this, you know, real honest you know, ambition that people were expressing and, and hunger to do something in their own lives and in their communities or cities or schools. And so fortunately, a, a wonderful band of, of people kind of came to my rescue and we formed, co-founded this um, Children in Nature Network. The, the original idea was that as a journalist, um, I know that nothing is horrible in my culture for more than 10 minutes. Um, or good in my culture for more than 10 minutes. Uh, you know, they're on to the next story. So I worried that six months down the line, because of the attention that Last Child was getting, yeah. beginning with an almost full-page story in the New York Times, because of that attention, six months down the road, there would be a trough of attention because 
reporters would go to their their editors and say, how about we do a story on children and nature? And they would say, no, no, we did that story already. Remember that book last year? So I thought it would actually reduce over six months the attention to the issue, and it would go away. So I thought we needed a website to do two things, to continue to tell the story in many different ways, to be um, an aggregate of the news on this issue, but also a place to continue to put the research that was coming out um, this is a terribly under-researched uh, topic, uh, but uh, more and more research was now beginning to emerge. A book is a snapshot in time, but if we had a kind of dynamic website that we could add abstracts, it, today it's the only place in the world, I think, you can go for a pretty complete uh, uh, set of abstracts of over 200 studies that have been done not only on the deficit, but on the... Uh, the uh, uh, benefits of nature to children, with links to the original research whenever we can provide those. Um, you know, it falls to a very small nonprofit to do that, yeah. and it, that shouldn't be the case. Major universities should have done this a long time yeah. ago. Um, and some, in Australia, for instance, Deakin University's ha University has done really good work. They're good researchers in Australia. Marty Townsend's uh, a fantastic lady, isn't she? Marty Townsend is terrific, and, and there's others there that yeah. are really doing good work. Some of the best research has been done in Australia yeah. on myopia, for instance, and its connection to how much time kids spend indoors. Uh, so the other reason for the website as it emerged was to have a, a meeting place for organizations and individuals, whether they were policymakers or parents yeah. or practitioners, who could come together and learn from each other and not pretend that, that you know, one person or ten people have all the answers, but rather have it be a place to communicate about this issue. In addition to that, to have people come together face to face. There are now, in North America, there are now, I think, 115, 120 uh, regional, state, provincial campaigns, big campaigns, uh, to connect kids to nature, and they're bringing people together into the same room who don't usually want to be in the same room. Politically, in a religious sense, people don't get along on a lot of other issues. They want to work together on this one. So we're seeing that emerge. Australia, you've got great things happening there. Uh, you, you know, in, in most of your states, there are major, major campaigns, either emerging or, or well-established after two or three years. Been to Australia three times, and well, two times <laughs> in several cities, and I'm going back in, yeah. in a little while. And um, I'm just, you know, profoundly impressed with how this is uh, caught on. It already existed in Australia, but it's really, uh, really emerged. There's a really kind of synchronicity there. There's a kind of a deep understanding of this issue in Australia and how important it is. It's, uh, and I've connected with some of those beautiful people too, so it's really inspiring yeah. for me, um, not only in the work that I'm doing, but also as a parent. Oh, good. And the, good. the website too, um, childrenandnature.org, yeah. is, I'm on there quite a lot. Oh, good. <laughs> Just finding, you know, finding some, some resources. Um, Janice Swayzgood and I were talking this morning about setting up a family nature club and resources on there that Great. I could use um, and tap in, as you said, start the conversation and we had a, a good conversation about how I might do that. Oh, that's great. Um, which is lots of fun. So, so Richard, what is nature deficit disorder? Can you give us a definition? Sure. It, it's a metaphor. It's not a medical diagnosis, mm. no medical diagnosis. Maybe it should be, but it's mm. not. Um, it is a way, though, to talk about this thing that we didn't have a way to talk about before, I don't think. Yeah. Um, also, it's important to point out that uh, uh, most of the research on this is correlative research rather than causal research. And the reason for that is nobody thought to ask the question 30 years ago because we were taking it for granted that we would always have this relationship with nature. Our kids would always have that. Future generations would always have that. So the research, we need a lot more research, but we do know enough to act. Uh, but I'm, I'm always, always, uh, I always want to caution that uh, the research is correlative, not causal. But almost all of this correlative research points in one direction. That's very rare for a large body of correlative research to emerge that points in one direction. So 
we pretty much know, even if we only use our common sense, what's happening. Yeah, excellent. Okay, and so there's so many people, as we know, involved in getting kids back out in nature, but who, who are the groups and who are the people that you think have that greatest responsibility and opportunity also to get kids back outside? Well, one of the things that I often hear, well, it's the parents' responsibility. Well, duh, of course it is, you know, but that's not enough. It's, it's too easy to say that. And we have to remember, in, in many places, not all, in many places, parents are really afraid and understandably afraid. In some neighborhoods, there's a lot of danger from strangers and from crime. But in most neighborhoods, at least in the United States, and I think it's true of Australia too, there isn't as much danger as we think. And that's because uh, uh, of the 24-hour news cycle, largely. It's largely my profession that has created more fear than is warranted. That's not to say there isn't risk out there. Uh, but we have to think in terms of comparative risk. Uh, yes, there is always risk from strangers, there, and always has been. There's risk from nature itself, always has been. That's part of its attraction. I know, because I collected a lot of snakes when I was a kid. Um, uh, but we, if you think in terms of comparative risk, um, one of real risk, you look at child obesity. I mean, pediatricians are saying this generation of kids will, in the United States, and I'm certainly this is true in Australia, will be the uh, first generation to have a shorter life uh, uh, span than their own parents in, in our history uh, as a culture. And uh, that's real risk. That comes from a sedentary lifestyle, uh, largely. Mm. Uh, it's a real risk to our sense of community if we never go out the front door. How are kids going to, uh, uh, you know, develop a sense of what democracy really means? I mean, this has political implications. It has implications for our relationship to the earth. Why in the world would people work to conserve and preserve and protect something they have never learned to love? They have never touched. So there, those are real risks. Those are big risks. So while there are risks out there, the truth is that, at least in the United States, the uh, violence toward children outside the home has been going down for about 30 years. People really don't know that. But I don't put down parents if they feel that fear. My wife and I felt that fear, even though I knew better because I'd written about the real statistics. But it's not rational, it's not rational because we're surrounded by messages coming from all directions to us uh, that it's, it's dangerous out there. And so it's quite um, expected that parents would react to that. Excellent. And you, you know, no one wants their kids to get hurt, obviously, but um, a little yeah. a, a, a broken finger. Kenny Ballantyne yesterday had a, a, a dislocated finger and, and two little kids come up to him and he said, how did they do that? And he said, well, actually, I did it while I was crossing a river. Well, um, Kenny shouldn't have done it. He should have yeah, stayed indoors yeah, and played should, video games yeah, right. until his, none of his fingers worked. <laughs> yeah, that's more of a risk, isn't it? Yeah. That's right. It was quite... It was actually, quite, there, there's truth to that, that, mm. that kids... Uh, today are far more likely, apparently, to have long-term damage from carpal tunnel syndrome than from broken bones. You know, carpal tun tunnel syndrome is a long-term mm. problem. You know, a broken bone is usually, not always, but usually is not. So, And part actually, of a rite of passage as well. <laughs> Yeah, it's, Sometimes, um, sort of. I, I never broke a bone, so I must no, not have passed. No, I didn't passed. break a bone either. <laughs> Which, one of the very first times I realised that, you know, country people can be disconnected with nature as well, but city people in particular was when I was talking to a client in my corporate wellness world, and we were talking about me growing up on a farm and how great that was, and a dairy farm. And he said to me, can you... He said to me, it'll be interesting if you ask people how many teats are on the udder of a cow. Very simple question that I thought everyone would know the answer to. Um, and he said, because people just don't know. And I thought, well, surely it's a cow. Most people will know that and know where their milk comes from. Uh, and so I started asking people, and I got every answer in the book besides the right one, which is four by the way. See, I'm glad you didn't ask me. <laughs> no. I was at, did you know? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> Not terrible, but I didn't grow up on a farm. I grew up in the edge of the suburbs, no, but right. no excuse. No, no, I just thought that for me that um, 
was really a little shocking given that I'd been able to grow up and I think every kid should have that sort of farm yeah. experience to, to yes. enjoy. Yeah. We were thinking about getting a cow here yeah. for our kids, but, but it's kind of small. Yeah. And there wasn't room in their bedrooms. So, uh, <laughs> um, no, I, you know, this daily life is, uh, I, you know, it, it's almost to me, it's not so much the detail. It's not so much whether kids could pass a test on, mm. on what birds they can name. That's important. It's very important to, to know the names of things because you tend to value the things you can name. On the other hand, so much of environmental education is so focused on the information. Now, kids get a lot of information. They can turn on cable television and see all kinds of shows about animals. Uh, what they don't get is experience. So, to my mind, this is more an issue of experience, of hands-on, feet, muddy, hands-wet experience being immersed in the natural world than it is whether you could pass a test on the, on the names of the flowers. Having said that, it's, you know, the next step, I mean, I said I collected a lot of snakes when I was a kid. I had my golden book of uh, snake for snake identification in my back pocket all the time, so I loved learning the names of these snakes. But at first it took getting out there and experiencing it, you know, and turning over rocks and and smelling what my hand smelled like yeah. after I found a ringneck snake. Yes. And, and all of those things. Those are, that, that direct experience is what is missing in, in kids' lives, more than the information. And it, nature can be so powerful in, as you said, you know, once you got out there, you started to see the world. And it really is helpful in fostering that curiosity and that awe and wonder that we yeah. don't often yeah. have in our lives. Right. Is it? in your research for Last Child in the Woods and in many of your, the other books you've written, you've interviewed a lot of parents and a lot of kids um, on yeah. you know, lots of different topics. But what are some of the main messages and main concerns that you have heard from parents of, or that, that have sort of set off alarm bells for you that this was a really important issue? Well, probably it's kind of summed up in, in, a, in a kid that I interviewed in San Diego in a classroom. This was early on. It's a classroom of kids. That's one little kid. He, he's a really neat kid. He's eight years old. And he said, uh, the reason I uh, would rather play indoors is because that's where all the electrical outlets are. And, um, you know, I, I hear from parents that they're afraid. I hear from parents that they don't have time, that their lives are so structured they can't help it's overstructured. They acknowledge their kids' lives. Um, among kids... Uh, it's more complex. I mean, they tell you how much they love their, their electronics, and that's understandable. And, you know, I like my gizmos too. Yeah. Um, but I think many of the, the kids do sense that they're missing out on something, and they'll say it. You know, I mean, the last child really began when I was up at a restaurant near here with my wife and sons and my younger son. I knew he had the fishing gene yeah. early because he, I caught him fishing in the humidifier. <laughs> but he looked at, did you he know, <laughs> he did quite well, actually, he uh, got the quota. Um, but the, uh, uh, I was telling him stories about tree houses when I was a kid, and Manti looked over at me and um, really said, um, Dad, how come it was more fun when you were a kid? I said, what do you mean? You're having all kinds of fun in life. You know, you are. And the truth was that that kind of fun was even uh, to a degree limited in their life, even though I, we were trying to give them nature. So they had a sense of that. Uh, in classrooms early on, I remember kids saying that um, they would watch the television show Lassie. Yes. Uh, which I watched when I was a kid. And to them, it was almost uh, an alien world. I remember one kid saying, that's like life on Mars to me. Wow. Um, so I, I think people really can articulate and this, and they do, and they still do. Yeah. They come up to me and tell me all kinds of stories, and I never get sick of hearing them, actually. And stories are so important, aren't they? To share yeah. stories, but also to 
to help remember, and I know you ask a lot of people, you know, think back to your childhood. Yeah. Richard, something that I know you'll be really proud of is that the Children and Nature Movement is really making some inroads and having some impact um, and getting the conversation started in the higher levels of government uh, here in the US and, and across the world uh, to some extent as well. But can you explain a bit about how that is impacting? Well, uh, we now have a Secretary of Interior, Sally Jewell, who's the former head of REI, which is outdoor equipment company. She really came to support this issue early on several years ago. Now she's the Secretary of Interior. But the truth is, she's the third Secretary of Interior in a row, beginning with a Republican, then a Democrat, now another Democrat, who have deeply cared about this issue that I've worked with uh, because they, they care about it. Um, there has been legislation that's been passed. Uh, um, there was a national bill, the uh, No Child Left Inside Act, that was uh, passed in uh, the U.S. House and then stalled in the Senate, but it was passed in the House. There are state uh, laws that have been passed. But I think uh, what's more important are, are two things. One is the grassroots movement is more important to my mind than legislation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's people like you who are starting family nature clubs, who are, you know, putting down the things that divide them politically um, in terms of religion, and they're working on this together. And now, many places around the world, uh, they're doing that. One of the things that has been really important is that the way we see this issue, I think, has shifted. I started arguing a few years ago and then wrote this in The Nature Principle, the second book, mm -hmm. that I think this should be considered a human right to connect, to have a positive connection to nature when you're a kid and when you're an adult. It started out to be a little bit of a controversial thing, both on the far left and the far right. I mean, many people understandably would say, why should a species that's destroying so many other species have, have a right to experience those species? On the far right, there was a sense that, well, the far, far religious right, there was some sense that, you know, nature doesn't really count. At best, it's a stepping stone to the, to the, um, the real paradise, and it's there to be exploited and used. In both cases, it's interesting that nature is perceived as the other, as separate from human beings. So I think that until we really, truly think of this as a human right, to have this in our lives. A, it won't be taken seriously. It'll be considered a nice to have instead of a have to have. And um, uh, B, we won't have a real sense of responsibility toward nature unless we see it as a right. Without responsibility, there is no right. Without a sense of right, there is no responsibility. It works both ways. So, to my uh, great um, excitement, and many people's excitement, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature in last September passed a resolution that uh, Children Nature Network had something to do with, with promoting, as did an environmental attorney uh, from the Netherlands, um, that says this is a human right. And this, the environment, IUCN is like a thousand nonprofits from all over the world, and they have 10,000 people at their, at their uh, World Congress, which they have every four years. This is in, in South Korea. And they, they pass this thing. That's a, symbolically, that's a huge moment. Even if it never gets to the UN, that's, that's an important moment. That's the first time this has been considered a human right. And they said it's for children. It's a right to connect with nature and, you know, and a, and a healthy environment, both those things. So in the long run, if we begin to think more in those terms, there will be a chance that we'll actually continue to do much more about this and not have it just uh, revert to being a fad. It would be a right, of, a right for children to, to get out and experience what we experience as kids in nature. Yeah. Earlier this year I had the pleasure of listening to your book The Nature Principle and I say listening because I was in the car uh, listening as an audiobook version which is very helpful for me as a mum. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and it, not a lot of time to sit down and, and read books so that, 
that was great. And um, when I was listening to it, I was actually on the way to immerse myself in nature um, and go zip lining in the Otway Ranges near my house for the first That's time, great. which was pretty cool. Yeah. And so when I was listening to it, it was really hitting home to me, the message. And in that book, you talk about the future, um, the future will belong to the nature smart. What do you mean by nature smart and how can we integrate that into our lives? Um, well, an example would be, I know that you work in, in uh, corporate health. Uh, there's a thing called biophilic design, which uh, is based on the early theory of E.O. Wilson at Harvard. Biophilia is our uh, innate uh, affiliation with the rest of the natural world. And he believes that uh, we are genetically wired to need nature, to have an affiliation to certain kinds of landscapes. You know, people all over the world, when they're asked what kind of landscape they prefer, it always looks like the savanna, generally, in, in all cultures. Whether or not people are urban or suburban, this is part of this. Um, uh, we, we need not to be alone in the world, and we need uh, a sense of where we are. You know, we need a connection to, to Earth. So there's this thing called biophilic design, which, for instance, in a workplace, if you weave nature into the design of a workplace, or retrofit the workplace with this, both around the building, but also within it, and then you keep it. Lots of nature around when you're working. Um, people uh, uh, tend to be far more productive. Sick time goes down. Turnover gets better. Uh, creativity goes up. Um, so the same is true for schools. I mean, just the presence of natural daylight, test scores will go up. In the United States, a few decades ago, you know, they started building uh, schools with no windows because they thought it would distract the kids. There was a little, the, what the designers called a vision strip <laughs> at the top of the wall. Which no one can see. Yeah, right. And um, so, and, you know, you often wonder, what are we thinking? But... but um, so that's an example of how this works for us in ways that we don't fully understand but can act on. As of 2008, more people live in cities than in the countryside in the whole world. That's a first in human history. That's a, that's a huge moment in our history as a species. What that means is one of two things. It either means that we will gradually lose whatever remaining connection to the natural world we have, or it means the beginning of a new kind of city. I like door number two quite a bit. <laughs> and, and you know, when I talk to college students and all that, I say, you know, why don't we start thinking about something beyond sustainability? I, you know, some of us had trouble with that word because it means so many things to so many people that it's lost meaning to many people. Uh, to many folks, it suggests stasis suggest survival, just getting by. What's creative 16-year-old is really interested in just that? They want to create something new. A place uh, where they want to be, too. Yeah, they, I mean, they want, to, they want to create something new and great. So I'm convinced that most people in Western culture, um, if you ask them to conjure up images of the future, of the far future, very quickly, what images come to your mind? I think most people see images that look a lot like Blade Runner, Mad Max, uh, The Hunger Games at best. That, at least that has a little nature in it. It hasn't been destroyed. But it's, but it's so strange that it's not nature as we know it. Um, a post-apocalyptic world in which nature has pretty much been stripped from our lives along with our humanity. That's, those are the images that people carry around with them. You know, the, 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 the number one young adult fiction genre now is called dystopic fiction. A dystopia. It's about a post-apocalyptic world in which not even vampires are having a good time. Um, again, if, if we're carrying around those images in our head all the time about the far future, no wonder we're depressed. Without a countervail, I'm, I'm not against, you know, dystopic fiction. 1984 was a good warning. Yes. On the other hand, if we don't have a, a balancing set of images of how great things could be, then we're really in trouble because we're we will surely get to that place where we that we imagine. 
And what what is your vision for the future and for those the future possibility where there are more we're more nature smart and yeah. we're more green. What is what does that look like for you? Um, well, we did this in the yard. I mean, my my wife Kathy is the. Uh, she's better at acting than I am, so we hired a young woman. We didn't know what we were doing, so we hired a young woman who's a landscape architect who knows about native plants. Mm. Most of the plants in this backyard are native now. It takes a lot less work, and it's, yes. uh, I think it's beautiful. You should have seen it before. And all kinds of critters are showing up. We have native butterflies we've never seen. Little birdhouse up in the tree. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but we have species of birds that are that are showing up that we've not seen. Insects that are that are here that are feeding the, a richer food chain. So we have now a nature-rich yard. We didn't before. Mm. Um, so I, I guess my vision would be to replace the phrase sustainability. We can still use it, mm. but go beyond it. To what if we had a future in which? We have nature-rich yards, nature-rich homes, nature-rich neighborhoods, nature-rich cities, nature-rich schools, nature-rich workplaces in which our lives were as immersed every day in the natural world as they are in technology. Uh, I'm not against technology, but there's a, a, a kind of a slogan that runs throughout the nature principle, which is the more high-tech our lives become, the more nature we need. It's not that life is going to get less high-tech. Um, it's going to get more so. So that means we need more nature in our lives. We really need to begin to think of a nature-rich urban environment. And one of the precepts of the nature principle is conservation is no longer enough. Now we need to create nature. As strange as that sounds, we need green roofs that are not just green, but green with native plants that will begin to bring back butterfly migration routes and bird migration routes. Um, we need cities that become engines of biodiversity, not the enemy of biodiversity, but engines of biodiversity. And we can do this. And when I talk with uh, particularly college students, there's a light that goes on in their eyes when they start thinking about this. It doesn't necessarily go on in their eyes when they're just talking about energy efficiency, when they're just talking about survivability sustainability. Um, to think about a nature-rich civilization is to have a very different set of images in your mind. And it's a good set of images. We, you know, Martin Luther King demonstrated in many ways that no movement, no culture will succeed. It will fail if it cannot paint a picture of a world that people will want to go to. To me, if we begin to paint a picture of a nature-rich civilization, that's a world I think most of us will want to go to. And, it, and that's a way, too, of engaging our kids and getting them interested, isn't it? And oh, yeah. passion is a big part yeah. of that, get, yeah. igniting their passion. Yeah, we can't just keep saying, you know, recycle. We can't just keep saying, you know, Wayne McDonough, who's a great kind of green design guru, he often says, um, uh, do you really want a sustainable marriage? Don't you want something better than that? A nature-rich one, <laughs> or a rich one, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't. And um, uh, I, I think most people want uh, something more than that. And nature can be so important in that connection, can't it? In our relationships with, with each other, in our relationships with ourselves, and, and particularly with families, I think that getting out and I know you've had lots and lots of experiences with your kids in nature and, and for yourself. Um, how does nature really help develop those family bonds and make them really strong? Yeah, this is one of the areas that we need more research on, uh, particularly within families. I think common sense would tell you that, you know, if you're a parent and you're competing with electronics all the time, what better way than to have a good conversation with your kid than to go for a walk in the woods. Get away from the electronics as far away as you can for a little while. Uh, that's got to have a good bonding effect. Also, there is some research showing that the, the urban parks, for example, that have the highest degree of biodiversity are the ones that have the highest impact and the best impact on human psychological well-being. You know, we are a lonely species. 
So it makes sense that when we come together with other species and with each other in those environments, we're going to feel better. Connection is, yeah, is really important. I know when I get out with my, just my little kids, and yeah. they're very young, but when we go out, that's some of the best times we have, and they keep sure. talking about it and sharing yeah. with, with their little mates and, yeah. and things like that. So um, I'm all for more research in that area as well. I love, yeah. I've been involved in research before, and I'm good. hopefully one day I am again. <laughs> Richard, what do you think are the biggest opportunities that we have as a, as a movement, but also as, as families and parents and schools? Uh, to get kids back outside? Well, I think one of the ways to do that is the way that you're interested in now is to create family nature clubs. And what these are are multiple families who come together and show up at the park on Saturday and go for a hike together. It deals with the fear issue. There's perceived safety in numbers. Any kind of family can do this. You don't have to wait for a foundation grant. You can do it yourself and you can do it now. And you can go to the Children Nature Network website and download a free toolkit that shows you how to, how to form one. Yeah. Uh, those are emerging all over the place now. And many of them have hundreds of families as members. Here in San Diego, Janice Swayskut and her husband Ron created a family nature, I think, three years ago. And now they have over a thousand families That's as incredible. members. Incredible. Yeah. And so um, one of the things that is good about that is that that doesn't fall back on nostalgia only, that accepts the reality that parents are afraid. And often they don't know how to connect to nature because we've got a young generation of parents that often didn't have much experience. So that recognizes that with respect and says, let's do it in a new way. And so that's one example. I think other examples are that teachers who insist on getting their kids outdoors, they need each other. So we created this uh, natural teachers network. So. They don't feel as alone. They learn from each other. Uh, young people really ought to be the real leaders of the Children Nature Movement. So Children Nature Network created uh, Natural Leaders, which is uh, uh, young people who, surprisingly, many of them who have joined this are from inner cities. It's a very diverse group of young people. And uh, so we need that. We do need policy changes. We need um, uh, legislation. We need big campaigns like the ones that have emerged in uh, uh, different parts of Australia uh, that combine uh, 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 nonprofit groups with uh, government action uh, to look at the physical environment, to bring down the barriers between people and the natural world, and not only to conserve what we have left, but to create more of it. Um, so how do we find out more about you, Richard, and all the great stuff you do in Children and Nature Network? Uh, well, I'm the Chairman Emeritus uh, now of Children and Nature Network, which means that I work just as hard, but I have a, uh, but I don't get paid, and I don't get uh, 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 to, to tell people what to do. I just <laughs> I work, but I work hard. Um, uh, I, I think. Uh, uh, the, you know, I hope people read the books. I hope people read my blogs, and uh, uh, I give a lot of speeches and try to uh, uh, be a cheerleader, really, for the great people out there, really all over the world, that were doing this before a book came along. And, uh, and I hope we're actually creating more demand for the good work that they do. Excellent. I can see that happening uh, in lots of different places. So. Yeah. So have you got any final words of wisdom to share with us? I know we've covered a lot today. Uh, it, I, I think the thing I've been thinking about recently is that the people who are working in this movement and have been for a long time, working hard, there's always a danger of burnout yeah. for people who go at this year after year. There's a difference, certainly within conservation, you hear a kind of level of despair among many conservationists, that understandably, because they deal with loss every day, particularly the wildlife yes. biologists. Uh, but people who connect kids to nature or other people to nature, it's a two-edged sword. And one, it's, it's good news because it's a happy cause. Not very many happy causes mm -hmm. around. But, you know, they struggle every day for funding. They struggle every day for support. And they're up against really big barriers. So the thing that I've thought about a lot recently is that we need to take care of each other. 
uh, within uh, this movement. Uh, yes, it's logical that we would compete for, you know, different groups would compete for the same funding, but we, we've got to be larger than that. We've got to create a bigger pie, not just to depend on existing funding, bring new players to the table, you know, bring business to the table more than it's been there. But mainly we kind of have to take care of each other and ourselves. And for me personally, what that comes down to is that I'm overdue to go fishing or yeah. go for a hike, and I'm feeling it. So sure, I've got you, nature you, deficit you. disorder right now. And, you know, it's important for us to practice what we preach, and that certainly goes for me. Excellent. Well, very good. Well, I wish you the best of luck on your next fishing trip. So. No good. <laughs> thanks, Richard. I've really enjoyed chatting to you, and thanks for inviting me okay. uh, here. Good. And I know what we've talked about today will help so many people who are parents, educators, um, and people in the movement to be inspired and really take inspired action to get out and connect kids with nature and hopefully move towards that nature-smart society. Good. Great. Thank you. Thanks for everything you're doing. Well, that's it for Nurture in Nature Radio for this week. I hope you enjoyed my very special episode featuring an interview with Richard Louve and the vitamin N version of the Family Nature Bucket List. Don't forget to check out all the great work that Richard does. Get hold of his books. You can do that at www.richardlouve.com. And both Richard and I would be thrilled if you would join us in our special vitamin N version of the Family Nature Bucket List. You can find all the details for that at www.nurtureinnature.com.au forward slash vitamin N. Please get involved and we'd love you to share with us and the world all your photos and videos and experiences on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter and on Pinterest using the hashtags hashtag Family Nature Bucket List and hashtag Vitamin N. Next week on Nurture in Nature Radio, I'll be speaking with Tim Gill. Tim is the founder of UK-based Rethinking Childhood, where he is a champion for positive change in children's lives. He's an esteemed author, a popular media authority, and he's a highly sought-after speaker and consultant to government departments, charities, corporates, educators, community groups, and organisations all around the world on the changing nature of childhood. And he's a really great advocate of nature play, of play, of free time, and really encouraging people to develop relationships with the places around them. So tune in for that next week. Nurture in Nature Radio hits the airwaves every Tuesday morning. That's Melbourne, Australia time. You can listen online at nurtureinnature.com.au forward slash show and you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. And now it's time for you to switch off whatever device you're listening on and switch on to your family and to nature for lots of fun, learning and memory making together. This is Nurture in Nature Radio. I'm your host, Tanya Maloney, and I look forward to seeing you and your family outside. Okay, everyone. Thanks for listening to Nurture in Nature Radio. Now let's go play outside. I'll race you to the door. See you again next week. Little trees need a chance to grow. It takes time and care.